Jason W. Moore is an environmental historian, historical geographer, and professor of sociology at Binghamton University. He is author or editor, most recently, of Capitalism in the Web of Life, Anthropocene or Capitalocene, Nature, History, and the Crisis of Capitalism, and with Raj Patel, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. His books and essays on environmental history, capitalism, and social theory have been widely recognized. He also coordinates the World Ecology Research Network. Jason W. Moore, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thanks so much, Mia. It's a pleasure to be here. We witnessed this summer droughts, heat waves, wildfires, floods, superstorms, and just yesterday, the sixth report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, was published against a glowing uh, backdrop of all these events going on before our very eyes, telling us Earth is warmer than it's been in 125,000 years, and that the cumulative impact of human activity since the Industrial Revolution is unequivocally causing rapid and potentially catastrophic changes to the climate. The thing is, how did we get here, and how can we change our behavior? Well, the first thing that we can do is we can begin to challenge the narrative that emerges out of the IPC and other major institutions of the worldwide environmental industrial complex, which is to present the problem in terms of man and nature. This is not a problem of man and nature. This is a problem of capital, class, and the 1% waging a ruthless war for its own enrichment over the past five centuries, not two, as environmentalists will often have it, but over the past five centuries. And we need to understand that the origins of today's planetary crisis do not rest in the hands of ingenious Englishmen coming up with a rotary steam engine in the year 1784 and then creating something called the Age of Man, the Anthropocene. No, indeed, the origins of today's planetary crisis emerge out of an avaricious, imperialist, violent process of conquest, commodification, and the appropriation of the unpaid work overwhelmingly of women and, of course, the rest of nature in order to fuel profit-making opportunities. We need to understand that all of that that I just narrated in a nutshell was also the invention of the idea of man versus nature, which is a thoroughly modern, thoroughly bourgeois, thoroughly imperialist construct. No other civilization in human history had this construct where man was completely outside, uh, humans were completely outside of the realm of nature. It was always one of connectivity. That was absolutely severed. So the first step that we need to make, I think, is at least when we read these reports, is to substitute the word anthropogenic made by humans, anthropogenic climate change, and put in its place capitalogenic made by capital. Exactly, because if it really, if we were really living in harmony with nature and we were really living within the limits, the human limits, because capitalism really just sets in human limits. It's actually, if you say it's an age of man or it's not even for us, as you say, it just seems like built for the limitless accumulation of capital. Well, that's right. And that's one of the effects of severing the, con- the connective tissues ideologically, but also geoculturally. And we can talk more about it because it's central to climate apartheid and climate patriarchy. But separating this, 
these domains of man and nature was not about redescribing human beings as being part of man in the uppercase. It was about expelling most human beings from humanity. So Slavs, Celts, indigenous peoples, Africans, most human beings in the world were then expelled from humanity. The better they could be cheapened, the better they could be turned into profit-making opportunities for the capitalist classes in uh, Western Europe. Yes, it really, it's very important for us to understand how this came about and how flawed this system is. And yet, you know, in our Western culture, or I would say particularly, you know, I'm in France now, so we are a little bit more, we're socialists more, but say in America, people really aren't even economists aren't even educated about socialism. I'm not even saying that socialism is necessarily the answer, but it does seem to be a little bit more in harmony with our planet. Well, I, think, yeah. I think it's so important what you're saying. And uh, yes, the more rich and powerful the country is, the less likely the popular culture as well as the elite culture amongst the intelligentsia, the policymakers, et cetera, will deal with the core issues of empire and class and the ways that those historical dynamics have driven us right to the precipice of hothouse earth. So you're absolutely uh, correct in that. And then I think also what's lacking, and this includes the overwhelming majority of self-identified environmentalists, but also, I hate to say it, most socialists as well, is a, a historical sensibility. And so often these issues of what will happen are treated as if we are in a kind of abstract philosophical debating society. And while speculation has its important, crucial, indispensable role, speculation without a grounding in world history and the actually existing dynamics of power, profit, and life that have brought the planet to this moment is really nothing. It's just speculation. It's throwing phrases against other phrases. And environmentalism has been complicit in this. Environmentalism has, from the beginning, invoked an abstracted notion of industrial society or industrial civilization, as Al Gore liked to tell us in Earth and the Balance, that it's a problem of we, and it's a problem of technology delinked from the profit-searching drive, delinked from the class dynamics of capitalism. And as anyone who studied technology and labor knows, the technologies that allow for bosses to control workers are the ones that are favored. It's not necessarily uh, about an abstract efficiency. Often the technologies of the modern world are monstrously inefficient. And yet because of environmentalism's historically historical myopia, if you will, and because of its pronounced distance from working class politics as well since 1968, for sure, that we have an inability to see that what so much of what environmentalism has been about, certainly since limits to growth in 1972, is been it's been about advocating a kind of managerial philosophy in which the right technological mix is ruled by the right experts and managing the planet as if it were a factory is the most rational way forward. And on that count, certainly state socialist projects bear their resemblance to those as well. But there's a lot of nuance there that we need to we need to look at for sure. 
Yes. Richard Wolff was talking to me recently. He was saying that when we think of capitalism, and of course, it's almost like a religion in America and elsewhere, but particularly in America, almost to even mention any other competing system or ideology is almost, it's a blasphemy. But when it is spoken about, it's as though, well, it's this shining system, but really he was giving a critique and you have also given this very strong critique of capitalism that uh, it didn't really do away with feudalism before. It didn't really do away, it just sort of built upon these crumbling structures, as you say, a colonial mentality. And it's not this new shining thing that really serves us democratically. Oh, no, of course, capitalism is the rule of the capitalist class. It is fundamentally anti-democratic. We know that in the United States, which is an oligarchy. It's a republic. It's not a democracy. It was premised on anti-democratic impulses from the very beginning, in the words of the framers of the Constitution, in fact, like James Madison. So, yes, indeed, it's been anti-democratic from the start. And if America is anything, it's not only an oligarchy, but an empire that has certainly since World War II sought to rule the world through not only military power, but also a kind of economic anti-Mark philosophy and strategy. So yes, indeed, we need to look at the long history of how capitalism emerged. And we need to understand that while people often use feudalism in a pejorative way, in fact, feudalism was a much more open and liberatory system was characterized by much lower degrees of inequality than what occurred in capitalism, especially after the years after the year 1550, more or less, when we begin to see the first onset of the first capitalogenic that is made by capital, capitalogenic climate crisis. So I mentioned these words, climate apartheid, climate patriarchy, which are real, very real in the world today. They are linked, of course, to the climate class divide. They are not the results of today's crisis. They are the prime movers of today's crisis. And they formed in this much earlier era of what I call, after Emmanuel Ladari, the long, cold 17th century, which was in part created by the New World genocides and ecocides of uh, the Colombian invasions. And in contrast to the way that, that people, I'm guessing in France, as well as in the United States, are taught about this, it was not a microbial accident that 95% of the Americans, the indigenous Americans, perished. It was a result straight up of cheap labor, cheap nature, and the slaving, the slaving drive, the drive to control labor in a fundamentally new way, in a super exploitative way, which was radically different from anything that we saw in European feudalism. So it's important that we connect this deeper history with the present moment. As I like to say, 1492 never stopped. I also assume that slavery stopped, but it's just been moving around from country to country and distancing, you know, we as beneficiaries, putting it out of uh, sight, out of mind, but still continuing. Once it's not on your doorstep, you don't have to feel the same shame and guilt. Well, and there are dominant cultures that tell us that, you know, France or the United States or Germany is rich because people were smart and worked hard and were more civilized in short than the rest of the world. If only the rest of the world did what the United States said after World War II in the era of development or did what Milton Friedman 
and Ronald Reagan and his advisors said in the 70s and 80s, then they would all be rich. And it's pure fantasy. It's pure ideological claim with no rooting in reality. So, and we want to be able to think about that in a longer historical perspective for this precise reason, that if modernity is shaped by this kind of ruthless geocultural domination that sorts everything out according to the civilized and the savage, society and nature, then uncivilized, unchristian, undeveloped, in short, poor people were part of nature. They were savage or not civilized, not developed, not ready yet to be developed. And what in every era from the 16th century, all the way to Truman, all the way to neoliberalism, what is it that the rulers always said? If you work hard, then you will find salvation. You will find civilization. You will find development. And dare I be an apostate here, there are echoes of that in the sustainability discourse all the way from, from 1972 onward, the sustainable development. If you are not ready to embrace this project, you are savage, irrational, lazy. You must hate the planet. You must hate nature. So there are resonances of this civilizing mission, as the uh, French like to call it, in not only today's neoliberal project, but also in sustainability. And it contributes to the kind of hopeless scenario almost this, you know, the world is burning kind of picture. And it contributes to that. It doesn't tell us what is to be done. When you see this with the youth movement, many have woken up to it, that we do need to approach with a sense of humility and really ask ourselves how we can learn from indigenous societies whose relationship to nature puts ours in to shame, who you really think of nature as not something to be conquered, but something you have to respect. And, you know, I think that in our in our past, we had that, but it's, it's a long time ago now. When I think about some of these really heartbreaking statistics, and I don't even know how this can be correct, that the Amazon, you know, once the, the sink for carbon is now responsible for emitting more. How can that even be possible? So... We need to relearn. I mean, we need to relearn from them and with humility and not just take this knowledge and, and appropriate, appropriate it, and, but really work together. And it's interesting the different ways earth law, this is being adopted into different, you know, Ecuador's constitution. I mean, I want to see more of that in America, though I know there are a lot of like municipal laws. Just tell us a little bit about the World Ecology Research Network and tell us about what what that is, your role within it, and maybe how you know others who are listening could get involved. Thanks. There is a World Ecology Research Network, which is a rough and ready, very horizontalist community of scholars, of activists, of artists. I think the work of artists in the present conjuncture is absolutely indispensable. And our aim is to reimagine not only planetary histories, today's planetary reality, but what are the contours of a strategy of planetary justice that takes seriously the emancipation, not only of all humans, but of life. So to quote Thomas Munzer, the great radical cleric from the German Peasant War of 1525, the creatures too must go free. And so this is really a challenge, not only to socialist politics, but to environmentalist politics. To the environmentalists, I always say, well, humans are animals too. And to the socialists, I point out, well, labor is a natural force. This was something that Marx was always pointing out, including to other 
socialist. So what does it look like to have a conception of civilizations of solidarity in the web of life? Capitalism clearly is not outside of, of nature. It's not outside of earth systems. It doesn't exist in some faraway corner of a distant uh, universe. It is very much a living, breathing, and yes, destructive as well as creative apparatus of power, profit, and life. So the world ecology conversation has germinated and developed over the past decade as a challenge not only to social reductionist orthodoxies of socialist thought and of academic thought that pretends that nature doesn't matter. So that's most of the social sciences and humanities. It also criticizes the view that we can put nature in a box uh, uh, and then in a separate box from society. So we have humans without ecologies over on one box and then we have ecologies without humans over on another. And somehow they run into each other on a collision course like in a ping pong match or something, they're going back and forth. No, that's that's absolutely a, a 17th century metaphor. And it's a 17th century metaphor that developed out of the great imperialist conquests of the era of that era of climate crisis. In fact, in the, the era of Descartes and John Locke and Hobbes and Bacon go on down the list, much of modern liberalism that is highly influential, in fact, in environmentalism, that political thought was born in an era of climate crisis and political contention. So anyway, what World Ecology points out is that we are not going to be able to grapple with the challenges of planetary crisis with the thinking that created planetary crisis. We are not going to be able to make sense of it and to act upon those sensibilities through the model of man and nature or society and nature. Those are geocultural concepts carried through and reproduced over the long run of capitalism that have been instruments of domination. Now, I'm not saying this in an academician's way, like what do you mean instruments of domination? Let me tell you that as I like to quip, nature is modernity's N-word for the web of life. That it is not only about the domination of nature as long understood, but it is also inscribed in, and woven into the most fundamental fabric of sexism and racism as ways of advancing the rate of profit, the profit-making opportunities for the 1%. And if you just pause for a moment, you can think of two things. One, the language of domination heterosexism, sexism, racism, colonialism, the language of that domination is always that of nature. It is always replete with naturalistic metaphors. And then on the, on the other side, if we want to begin to really make sense of these projects, we need to come up with ways of moving beyond what are often called civil rights struggles. Now, why are they called civil rights struggles? Because they are struggles waged by human beings who have been excluded from civilization, from civil society, from this society that we talk about when we say society and nature. Those struggles are necessary, by the way. Uh, but how do we move beyond that well, we have to move towards a conception of justice that takes to heart Martin Luther King's comments, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that was an idea that he extended in his famous Christmas sermon in 1967 to the web of life. He said, we have to recognize that we are all one. So that, I think, has to be forward-looking. We have to build upon traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous traditions, 
many other so-called non-Western traditions, but we can't be content with that. Otherwise, we end up with a romantic ecology. No, we need the insights from that oneness, and we need to carry it forward to a new synthesis. Nostalgia and romance will get us nowhere. If anything was the time for action, it's now, and we do see that on our doorstep every day. I think we know this is roughly the answers. We know what needs to be done, and it's a lot of sacrifices or just like giving up the way we've come to live. And so what are your hopes or, you know, practical advice regarding the future and steps that can be made? And we're coming up to COP26. You know, what are the, it's how we prioritize certain things too. Well, we need to reconceptualize environmental politics and we need to move it away from saving nature. And we need to follow the lessons of peasant and worker and semi-worker, semi-peasant struggles worldwide to forge what, uh, what is sometimes called environmental justice, what I would prefer to call a kind of working class, broadly conceived, a working class environmentalism and an environmentalist working class politics that confronts squarely not only the danger of planetary crisis, but also the danger of the eco-industrial complex. And that might sound harsh, but what I mean is this is very much inspired by Naomi Klein's critique, and this changes everything, that yes, there is a realization that climate change is real and severe. And there is a profound institutional structural unwillingness to fundamentally rethink the character of the problem. And why is that? Because in order to rethink the character of the problem, we would have to confront the climate class divide squarely. So that kind of relationship places strict limits on what kind of politics can move forward. We need to reimagine what environmental justice is. My argument for that is, in a nutshell, planetary justice. It has to be working class and peasant uh, oriented. It has to fuse the geological and biospheric realities of, say, greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere with this trinity of the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, and climate apartheid. And to grasp that, that the geophysical moment has not created that climate trinity of the class divide, apartheid, and patriarchy. No, quite the contrary, that the climate capitalogenic trinity, which emerged in the 17th century, is now bearing horrific fruit in the climate crisis and creating specific forms of domination that, in, of social domination that incorporate at their, in their very fabric the, the logic of class power and capital accumulation and this sensibility that, well, more and more domination is necessary in order to maintain business as usual. When we know, and you're saying it more elegantly than I am, Mia, we know that business as usual is impossible, but nobody institutionally is willing to confront that head on because it would require decommodification, the recollectivization of care, of agriculture, et cetera. I don't mean recollectivization, uh, recollectivization as like state farms. I mean, literally, agriculture has to be reinvented from top to bottom, bottom to top in an egalitarian way. We need a new science that is really oriented towards the needs and imperatives of the 99%, not the 1%. So when we're thinking about our future or the future of our relationship with nature and the need to shift our views on climate 
justice. How exactly do you think we should go about changing humans' mindsets to be more compatible with nature? And do you think that it's possible to do so in the near future? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is euthanize nature, which, as I like to say, is modernity's N-word for the web of life. We need to promote at every turn a oneness with, with and within webs of life. Humans themselves are complex webs of life and contain, we, as we know from the pandemic, we are ourselves environments for other creatures and other forms of life. So that's one step. I think that we want to first have a truth and reconciliation moment with mainstream environmentalism as it took shape in 1970. And I use that phrase, truth and reconciliation, to refer, for instance, to South Africa's post-apartheid process or other moments as we saw in genocide with the, the U.S.-backed Guatemalan dictatorship, the oligarchic dictatorship engaging in one of the worst genocides of the 20th century on a per capita basis. We want a truth and reconciliation moment because what Biggie environmentalism did from the beginning is it said some environmental problems are real environmental problems. They're problems of nature. They're uh, particular problems of pollution. They're particular problems of devastation and degradation, but they are not, they are not emphatically problems of working class lives. So mainstream environmentalism from the very beginning ignored not only the real lives of coal miners in West Virginia with black lung, of cancer-stricken workers in the oil, in the, in the chemical industries of Louisiana, the so-called cancer alley, poisoned farm workers. And we can, we can multiply those instances worldwide. Not only did it fail to mobilize in support of those, it failed to mobilize in favor of working-class environmentalism everywhere on a world scale. So when Chico Mendez, who famously said, ecology without class struggle is gardening, and he was killed uh, for his efforts, there was no large-scale mobilization on the part of the environmentalism of the rich in the North countries around that. And that unfortunately has continued, as we know, the killings of environmental activists worldwide, overwhelmingly in the South, has been in the thousands since the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010. And that's not a coincidence, by the way. So the first thing that we need to reorient ourselves around is to get rid of, of the notion that nature is something there to be saved, which is a very condescending notion. And in fact, it is a paternalistic notion and a Promethean notion that it was a, a set of ideas that was born in the ecocides and genocides of the 16th and 17th century. We need to stop thinking and seeing like an empire, which is what environmentalists do, notwithstanding their good intentions. And I don't mean to impugn anyone's intentions, what's in anyone's heart. I think that what environmentalism contributed to, mainstream environmentalism, that is not environmental justice, not working class environmentalism, but what environmentalism contributed to over the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s was a sense that there is no alternative to man and nature. That the ideology of modern environmentalism is an ideology born out of scientists and then politically put into practice by courtroom lawyers. It is, not, it is not like the labor movement. It is not like anti-war movements. And in fact, environmentalism has had little to say about those. So we have to confront these blind spots, not only the anti-working class bias, but the willingness to accommodate imperialism and the forever wars of, of the past, especially the past 20 years. My favorite example of this is in 1970, which occurs 
precisely one week before the, the illegal invasion of Cambodia, which set in motion the largest anti-war movement in world history, which is, sticks in our memory with the killings at Kent State and Jackson State Universities. The environmentalists did nothing to come out against the war, and they continued to do nothing to come out against the war. So when we wonder, well, why aren't environmentalists able to do anything about climate change? I think there's an argument to be made. Modern environmentalism was never supposed to do anything about international problems because that's the site of international power. And that means that we need to begin a process of truth and reconciliation to understand how environmentalism has worked as functionally as a kind of pro-systemic politics that is manifestly unable to mobilize large movements in favor of climate justice. I think for that, we have to look at the experiences of anti-war, anti-racist, feminist, and of course, labor movements, and including peasant movements, like we saw in Delhi last year, 200,000 farmers, that kind of mobilization. That's what will be necessary in order to pursue a climate justice politics. I know that all these movements have uh, a big task, so I, I can't, we all have to work together with everyone. Uh, one way in which the green movement has maybe there's this air of skepticism that they feel that they have to sell it to the general public to say, oh, what's the economic incentive? Oh, you'll be making more money, new jobs. It's another kind of uh, bonanza, gold rush that you'll find around the corner. And I think it's important, but at the same time, it also leads to this greenwashing, you know, myths of net zero. I want net zero, but people just saying they're net zero when they're not, or corporations rather. And so, it, it, as you say, it's been hand in hand with the very corporations that it might seem to be trying to offer an alternative to. So one, how do we overcome that? And how, and I guess my feeling is it has to begin, you know, with our education system that we have to get all more climate literate and we have to have this, how do you say, web of life being something that's, that's taught at a young age so that, you know, young people, they can change their mindset. Well, I think that's right. But let's remember what's been happening both in K through 12 education and especially in so-called higher education, that it's been transformed into knowledge, a knowledge factory. That's a phrase that originates not with a critic, but with Clark Kerr, the chancellor of Berkeley in the early 1960s, and was then roundly criticized by new left radicals for that idea. But that is uh, uh, unquestionably the logic of what we've seen. So we see this very clearly in the universities and schools, that climate education unfolds very much within the dominant planetary management mindset of sustainable development in the eco-industrial complex. So in terms of education, you're absolutely right. The question, but what we are seeing, sadly, and I see this very clearly in the world university system, is not a willingness to rethink, not a willingness to go into new terrain, not a willingness to depart from disciplinary and, and specialization boundaries, but an enforcement of all of those. 
And so we see this with not only a profound technocratic turn around sustain, so-called sustainability studies, where everybody you know, wants to have a, a particular methodological straitjacket imposed, but also that in order to get funding, you have to agree with the policy preferences of the governments in power. I mean, that's, that's straight up the problem nearly everywhere. So there are certain things that you can say and not say in that, that framework. In fact, it bears a lot of parallels to the classic arguments of Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman around manufacturing consent. And indeed, I think around the questions of sustainability, that the universities have now become pivotal institutions in manufacturing consent. So when we talk about the Anthropocene, the number of dissenters to the Anthropocene and the earth science community, I'm sure there are more than this, but the two that I can think of are the great geographers, Maslin and Lewis, who say, well, wait a minute, the Anthropocene doesn't begin after World War II. It begins with what they call the Orbis Spike, the low point in carbon dioxide concentrations in 1610 that followed upon the extermination, the slaving-induced extermination of indigenous peoples in the Americas. And nobody wants to pay attention to that because it says the problem is the interlinked dynamics of empire, class formation and cheap nature, cheap labor, and the web of life. And so that's instructive of the kind of barriers that the present universities have established to a more wide-ranging way of, of conceptualizing. A radical rethinking in the sense of radical is to go to the root of the problem, but they don't want to go to the root of the problem. They want to stick tight to man and nature. And for specific kinds of enterprises that earth system scientists will often do, like they're looking for geological spikes, the so-called golden spikes. Okay, that's fine. That's a provisional formulation, yes. But those same figures, those same earth system scientists are willing to completely violate that boundary and go into the realm of human affairs that, yes, happens to evolve questions of the web of life, but is also the terrain of power and profit and struggles over care and reproduction and lives and all the things that I talk about with Raj Patel and Seven Cheap Things. So there is a profound arrogance to the earth system scientists, people like Johan Rockström, who say, well, we need bankers to solve the problem. No, we do not. What we need is to socialize the banking system, create a public utility system. And to answer your question, why is it happening in the Amazon, this disastrous pivot from climate absorbing to climate emitting, shut off their capital. That's how we do it. I'm Lila Moskowski, a student at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, and a collaborator with the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. Hearing Professor Moore discuss the topic of climate change through the lens of both environmental history and capitalism is fascinating to me because it puts a new perspective on a topic that I have always been intrigued by. I have a keen interest in environmental history and I want to learn everything that I can about the impact of humans on the natural world, but I have found it difficult to find courses that cover this topic in school. As a result, I created an environmental history curriculum for high school juniors and seniors last spring that focused on different climate events throughout history, such as the Little Ice Age, and I explored how various societies dealt with them. In some cases, they thrived, and in others, they collapsed. Professor Moore's take on this topic was especially interesting to me because I had traditionally focused on the outcomes of these climate crises as opposed to what had caused them. 
The idea of tracing our current climate change event back to the creation of capitalism was eye-opening to me because it pinpoints exactly what human behavior created the imbalance in the natural world. In my project, I focused on how the past could serve as a guide for how to deal with the future of our climate, but Professor Moore poses a different approach. He posits that we are reaching a point of no return. The state of our climate is much more drastic than anything we have seen before in our history. He plainly states what needs to be done and what the problems with the systems we have in place currently are, which I think is incredibly important to making a meaningful change. For me personally, his critique of what is currently being done or not being done in an attempt to save the planet is very honest and I am compelled by it because of this. I want to find ways to save the earth from its current state of peril, and Professor Moore's approach of working from the root of the initial problem opens doors for exactly how to do so. And now, back to the interview. It's radical. I love to hear radical ideas because we're living in radical times. You've mentioned a cheap nature. And maybe if you could just expand a little more, you wrote the book History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. And just, just tell us a bit about the organizing principle and for, for those who haven't read the work. Absolutely. So the first thing that we're going to remember is that this word nature, and I want you all to imagine an uppercase N with that. This word nature is not only the most complex word in the language, it's also in the modern world, the most dangerous word, because nature is what civilizations use to, to appropriate and exploit the unpaid work and the paid work of women, nature, and colonies to create systems of racialized and gender domination and to do so through a project that I call bourgeois naturalism. That is to convert webs of life, including humans, into nature, the better that they can be cheapened. Now, cheapened means two things. Cheapened means first to cheapen in price, to lower in price, not for you and I, not for the 90%, but for the 1%. Why? Because the lower the, pro the cost of production, the higher the rate of profit. The cheaper your steel, the cheaper your oil, the cheaper your labor, all things being equal, the higher your rate of profit. So that's one moment of it. But there's another meaning of cheap to cheapen in the English language, which is to devalue, to treat with less respect, to rob of dignity and respect. And that is clearly what we are seeing with racialized and gendered work regimes, most famously the unpaid work regimes of women, which was an invention of the 16th, 16th and 17th centuries, by the way. Why? Because it was simply too expensive to treat the social and biological, the socio-biological moments of producing workers of what's called social reproduction, it was impossible to treat that with any equity. So as I quip in, in uh, Capitalism in the Web of Life, I say to call for capitalism to pay its own cost of reproduction, wages for housework, for instance, is to call for its abolition. To call for capitalism to cover the cost of ecosystem services is to call for the end of capitalism because the cheapness of the web of life is precisely what enables the extraordinary, really bizarre and unthinkable concentrations of wealth in the world of people who are driving us headlong into the abyss of, of the planetary inferno. So cheapness is a dynamic of domination and price. And both of those are wielded by the 1% to enrich themselves and to create this weird pathological 
uh, way of seeing the world in which the wealth of humans and the rest of nature allow, is unlimited, is limitless. And so that's all that they know. Now, in an era of climate change and the end of frontiers of cheap nature, what we are seeing is something absolutely terrifying, which is a resurgence of forms of eco-fascism and forms of environmentalism that are strongly committed to anti-immigrant politics. And that's something that's not going to go away. It's been there from the beginning of modern environmentalism. So you see, we have a lot of these dynamics that we really, we need to be fearless about not just rethinking, but unthinking. We have to go through and look at the ways that environmentalism, actually existing environmentalism, has been fundamental to reproducing sets of the problem that have created the planetary crisis. And just listening to you, it's evident uh, your commitment and passion. And I'm sure that Lila and other students listening really want to know, they're really looking for a mission in life and something that they can passionately devote their life to. So what was the beginning for you in terms of your journey to becoming an environmental historian? Well, I came out of the left in the United States. That's the environment in which I grew up in a, in a strange place in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, which was a flashpoint for North American environmentalism in the 1980s. And I saw right away as I entered university, the disjuncture between labor politics and environmentalist politics. The environmentalists, student environmentalists in the late 80s, early 90s, and many other environmentalists hated workers. Workers were part of the problem. Sadly, that's not exceptional. And, and worker gets redefined as blue collar, pink collar work, people who work you know, as administrative assistants, they're working on the roads, they're waiting tables. They're not part of the affluent sector of the American working class, the so-called white collar working class, which has been the demographic basis for North American environmentalism, but also environmentalism across the rich countries of the planet. And so they like to pretend that they were professionals and they were in love with environmentalism as a managerial philosophy. And for me, I love workers and I hate managers. Now, managers in some places are necessary and, you know, that's a different thing. But as a class, my sympathies are certainly not with the bosses, they're with the workers. And I thought that fundamental to the problem of what was then the Pacific Northwest forest crisis needed to be a labor-oriented environmentalism. A uh, teacher of mine, John Bellamy Foster, a very well-known eco-socialist theorist, wrote a great pamphlet in the early 90s called The Limits of Environmentalism Without Class. Richard White, the great environmental historian, famously penned an essay called uh, Are You an Environmentalist or Do You Work for a Living?, which was very much targeted towards this kind of environmentalist problematic. Sadly, it's still with us. So I think the first strategic orientation one needs to make is, does one want to join the eco-industrial complex or does one want to find the opportunities for what broadly could be called a labor environment coalition? And those are emerging. I don't know the UK uh, scene and the European scene as well as I would like, but in the United States, those are around. They're not backed by either labor or the big green groups. That's the problem. But in order to deal with this crisis, the planetary crisis, we need to open up this question of what is a labor orientation? And we need to go beyond the narrow circumscription of that question 
by environmentalists and socialists alike. We need to understand that labor is not only labor power that you are paid for which you are paid, it is also the unpaid work of social reproduction and it is the work of nature as a whole. It involves not just the proletariat in other words, but the femitariat, the unpaid work of human overwhelmingly feminized human beings as well as the biotariat, the unpaid work of the nature as a whole. And once we begin to put those into a conversation and we move from a view that says, oh my God, the sky is falling, maybe it is, but we move from a view of hopelessness of man and nature towards a view of what are the conditions for a human working class solidarity with the web of life and with the conditions of unpaid work? How do we put together a labor feminist and environmentalist politics and, and anti-colonial politics as well and anti-war politics as well? How do we join those into a new movement? And as we know, the established movements don't want that. Whatever they say, they don't want that. Social Democratic and labor parties do not want that. In the main, there are exceptions. And, and the problem is the same on the other side of the aisle. It's absolutely destructive. So I think to Lila and your colleagues and peers, be fearless about transgressing those boundaries. Do not accept the received wisdom on what counts as environmental and what counts as labor politics. We need to imagine not just a new world sometime in the future, but a new ethics and practice of planetary struggle. I'm seeing a lot of changes, you know, which makes me hopeful. But yeah, they kind of were separating, as you say, workers, or there was this dichotomy of polarization set up between the economy versus ecology. And so workers would uh, seem like they, they, whatever was good for the economy was good for them and their jobs if it polluted the environment. And really, they can be brought together, I, I believe so, in terms of there are green jobs and green jobs where one's quality of life doesn't have, where we can live more in harmony. I'm now so hesitant to use the word nature because you've made me so critical of it, but the natural world, we should say, maybe. <laughs> Well, yes, and we need to also underscore that there's a there's a real struggle going on in the world today around green jobs and the Green New Deal. And the most likely outcome over the short term will be a series of massive subsidies for uh, big capital. And it turns out that on the ground, green energy is uh, uh, old wine in a new bottle, that the green energy uh, companies behave in precisely the same predatory and, and exploitative ways as the old energy companies. It's just a different context. So the behavior is the same. On the other side is a struggle for, a, say, a green economy or a green jobs program that involves decommodification, that involves taking crucial elements, starting with transportation, perhaps, out of the market and finding ways that mobilize. I think we can also think of housing as one of the key dimensions of this. Areas of life where democratization and decommodification can go hand in hand, perhaps also with universal basic income, because what's necessary, what's at the heart of any politics of planetary justice is a politics of redistribution, not only of power, but also clearly of wealth. Large scale redistributions of wealth need to be pursued as fundamental to any short run green politics. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, about the responsibility, we see this race to go to space and I just, 
I mean, I don't know, maybe some things are discovered there. I mean, because we've had interesting conversations around that, but I want us to kind of sort out what we're doing on this planet before we start to spend excessive amount of monies exploring other planets to dominate their nature. Well, that's right. And it's not cheap nature. It's very expensive nature. And it requires also that we go to the core of the modern environmental imaginary, which had everything to do with the so-called space race in the Cold War. If you think of uh, Blue Marble, the 1972 photograph that hangs in Al Gore's office, uh, that, that photograph was a picture taken from a doomsday device. That is the, the space program, the American space program was the conscious and deliberate program to develop the capacities for a first strike nuclear war. That's straight up what that was about. Sputnik was launched in 1957 from the Soviets, was launched from an ICBM. The first, the Mercury and Gemini rockets space missions were launched on the Atlas ICBMs. This is why we really need to interrogate the history, not just of material environmental history, but the history of ideas in environmentalism. They're not innocent ideas. And I'm not saying that they can be not innocent and still useful, by the way. So I'm not trying to tar with a broad brush, but with a fairly wide brush, I am. Because there's a lot of history that environmentalism, and it's not alone, but since this is the topic of conversation, has tried to wipe clean our historical memory. When we're looking there, again, we need to return to the questions of education. But again, even at my university, and I have a lot of wonderful colleagues here, I encounter my students in my classes who are taught in their introduction to environmental studies that the problem is overpopulation. And if there is a problem of overpopulation, it's a problem of the overpopulation of too many billionaires. That's the overpopulated stratum of humankind. I think if we can all live more within our limits, it seems like we're supposed to be such intelligent creatures. We always pride ourselves in inventive and creative, but even the simplest, you know, single-celled organisms, or, you know, if you go into all manner of animal and plant, they all live with such perfect harmony. They must be geniuses. Well, and, and also let's remember that the kinds of technological innovations that could have genuinely widespread, broad-based planetary impact are systematically discouraged. I would refer readers to a wonderful little book by a brilliant scholar, Je Jesse Goldstein, called Planetary Improvement. And he went and really did an ethnographic study of the kinds of technologies that were valorized and invested in through a so-called green technology or clean technology system. And what he found was basically that investors only want the most short-term immediate gains that, from which they can profit. And so when we look at capitalist modernity, we need to understand that the short-term, the acquisitiveness, the antisocial properties that we associate now with human nature are in fact those that have been actively created, licensed, encouraged by capitalism over the centuries. And so we have the great inventors, the great thinkers, oftentimes the most creative figures who are deeply marginalized. And I'm guessing many of them we have never heard from. Exactly. I think that they also, they're like big ideas. I mean, we hear a lot now people getting excited about certain uh, geoengineering solutions. I mean, some of them are like more in, in tune with the natural world, but others are just 
you know, seems like crazy, but then it's something you can get excited and inv investors excited about. And so I'd like to, I like even simple solutions. I mean, I like the, the idea that we can all have, you know, rooftop solar or, you know, that we we can be a part of it and it doesn't it's not too complicated so i'm i'm excited to hear that if you if you know of any of, of others that you know uh, ways that we can all be involved i always like to hear that so the question is how is small is beautiful combined with big is necessary so small is beautiful of course from schumacher's famous 1972 book 73 book but but also we need to understand and this is also where the left has run into a lot of problems in recent decades that there's only one institution capable of uh, rebuilding the electrical grids, the water systems, et cetera, for every major city that's on the coastline on this planet. And that's the state. And that's also the only institution that is open to democratic control. So we need to be able to combine small is beautiful, yes, emphatically, a thousand times yes, and big as necessary. And we can't, otherwise we fetishize one or the other. We need to see those in concert with each other. Yeah. So I am a student and I'm really interested in environmental history, but it's not a course that I've seen very much in my education throughout my various schools. So I was wondering what environmental history books or readings have been really eye-opening for you and how do you inspire your students to want to make a meaningful change? Well, I connect with them around their basic conditions of life. You know, where are they going to live? How are they going to live? Are they going to be able to have health care? Are they going to be able to find a place in uh, the world? And I talk about how climate change is not a far out issue. I was teaching this a decade ago. See, we're not waiting for the disasters to happen. They have happened. They are happening. And the disasters aren't natural. They involve climate, but the disasters are very much made by the conditions of capitalist accumulation. So that's one part of it. For me, the inspiring techniques around a broadly defined environmental and historical imagination would include great figures, great luminaries of environmental history like Donald Worcester, but also the geneticists, the Harvard geneticists, Richard Levins and Richard Lewinton around the dialectical biologists. So imagine this uh, web of, of connections and to argue against mainstream science, positivist science as, as a way forward. I was very much inspired by the work of Raymond Williams, the great Marxist literary critic and novelist in, in Ideas of Nature, one of the most, maybe the most impactful essays I've ever read. And alongside that, under very, very impactful, I would look at the work of Claudia von Verhoff, the great German Marxist feminist, who has this wonderful line to say that nature is everything the bourgeoisie doesn't want to pay for. And so she's very much connecting the ideological redefinition of women as part of nature with the class and accumulation moments of that ideological domination. Those are, those are fundamental. I would also look at world history of the work of Emanuel Wallerstein in his historical work. He's very well known as a kind of systems theorist, although that's a very inaccurate way of putting it, but this extraordinary world historical imagination to see how climate and disease and empires and classes are all linked together in this extraordinary moment of the conquest of the Americas and the rise of capitalism after 1492. Feminist historians of science like Carolyn Merchant, The Death of Nature, that's a, that's a fundamental text. Theologians like Daly and Cobb, The Liberation of Life, 
is is also fantastic. So many of them come out of a broadly defined and, and heterodox Marxist tradition, but many do not. And it's hard to recuperate those. Even if you were to take an environmental history course, Lila, I think some of those might be in there. Don Worcester might be in there. But much of environmental history, I love the field of environmental history. I, I learn so much every time. But most of it is premised on a denial of labor, a denial of class, and is very much a sort of market-oriented story. It makes capitalism into a story of markets. But capitalism is only secondarily a story of markets. Capitalism doesn't destroy webs of life or simplify them through the market. It destroys them by using markets that are backed by states and empires. And in the ultimate final analysis, it sends soldiers with guns out into the field to make sure that those natures can be used profitably by business. And so we want to get a sense of you know, it's it's how capitalism works, not in relation to this separate thing that we call environmental history, but to understand, well, this is what Raj Patel and I do in Seven Chief Things, is to understand that something as abstract as finance is, in fact, a way of transforming webs of life. As I like to say, Wall Street is a way of organizing nature. So we we need to stop putting environmental change and environmental history into a kind of ghetto out on the side. We need to bring it into the heart of our thinking so we can bring these ideas that both of you, Mia and Lila, were underscoring this, the essential, the indispensable need for oneness, for oneness, but not in a romantic way. I mean, that's a fine place to start. And that's also where I connected. I connect with the reverence for the web of life. I connect with that quest for connection with webs of life to overcome the alienation that we experience at an everyday level in this world. And we need to take that as a point of departure, not a point of arrival. We need to, there is no mythical return to the past. In fact, that is a dangerous politics that has been present since the 1970s. Well, if only we can just, we're going to go off the grid. There's no grid that off of which you can go today. So Lila, I think I would be intrepid for those in your quest for thinkers who are really going to push the limits of your comfort. And sometimes they might do so because they're right wing and sort of being more extreme. But another version is to almost to follow the royal road of science, if you will, which can be quite arduous, follow that royal, that, 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 that arduous road rather uh, to new formulations and new syntheses. Like how do we put together labor and environment and feminist politics? That's, when you ask questions like that, then uh, you're going to find something really interesting. And you'll find that people who adhere to those traditions will get very upset as well, because you're saying, hey, that's great, but we need to go farther. Yes, well, it's a bold message and uh, an important one, uh, and it can be more timely. And as you say about reconnecting with uh, the web of life and that we are all one, what are some ways that you do that? And what are some of your personal memories? You know, uh, not to be too romantic, again, I know you're critical of that, but about the beauty and wonder of the natural world that you want to preserve for future generations. I would say my experience of webs of life and connections with web of, webs of life is everywhere that, that I can see the beauty in my urban walks, in urban spaces, but also 
out in trails that are themselves deeply humanized. And we need to understand that those are the products of labor and that's sacred just as all other species like human beings, but unlike them are themselves ecosystem engineers. They are making webs of life and being made by webs of life. And so for me, what I connect with is that sort of spirit of connection and a reverence for the web of life that includes all forms of human work, all forms of human labor, paid and unpaid, and sees the, the, that how those forms of work are always in a creative and dynamic tension with extra human webs of life. And so I think that has saved me from the illusion that in order to get back to nature, I have to go someplace far away. And the truth is those places are not untouched, not by any stretch of the imagination. And then we also want to remember, and I would plea, I would make this plea, especially to students who are maybe starting a life of thinking, thinking itself is an ecological act. That being in the web of life is recuperating and advancing thinking, being, and doing as an unbroken, if asymmetrical, circle. That thinking and doing in the web of life are, that's what we want. We want to overcome this separation of nature and society, which is also a separation of thinking and doing. So thinking and doing the Cartesian separation of thinking things and extended things is the earliest classic expression of a manager's philosophy of the world. That's how managers reorganize work. They say, we're going to conceptualize the process and we're going to reduce you, the worker, to the most simple and elementary tasks so that you can be hands um, or beasts of burden in one way or another. No, how do we recuperate that? And so in that sense, we can take the indigenous sensibilities of connection and oneness and others, non-Western traditions, and put those at the heart of a revolutionary vision for rejoining and overcoming the alienation of labor, which is an alienation manifest in nature versus man. Instead, we want to be thinking, creative, dynamic beings who are also in and of the world, in and of the web of life. And we want to embrace that connection rather than trying to decimate it. What are the alternatives for a, a genuine reconnection within webs of life free of the violence of capitalist alienation? Well, thank you so much for your powerful critiques and really helping us put uh, to the forefront of our minds, uh, you know, what is really important in this life. And it's not to live these fractured lives disconnected from nature, but to understand that we are all one and also ask of ourselves, what can we do to help, you know, bring us all together and it's, it's a community process and and you certainly have done much to contribute to our understanding so thank you professor jason w moore for your critique of capitalism insights into the web of life the capitalist scene and the anthropocene environmental history social he theory helping us reflect on nature the ecological crises global turbulence and reminding us how connected we are we all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your dedication to the environment and for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. It's been an honor and a real pleasure to talk with Yumia and Lila. Keep doing what you're doing and be fearless. One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lila Muskoski with the participation of collaborating universities and students. 
The Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Lila Muskowski. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.